1999, a guy named Harry Markopoulos was working at an investment firm. One of his clients had money invested with another investment firm, a guy by the name of Bernie Madoff. I, sounds like you've heard of him. Markopoulos was given the assignment by his investment firm of creating an investment product that could compete with Madoff's investment funds. They wanted to get business from their clients who had business with Madoff's firm, and they thought, well, let's come up with something similar to what he's doing and maybe attract them to invest with us rather than him. So Markopoulos began to look into what Madoff was doing, and he was able to get a detailed report of the revenue stream from one of his clients. They said, yeah, if you can do this, I'll switch over to you guys. Much later, after the fraud was revealed, uh, someone asked Markopoulos what he thought when he first saw the numbers that were presented to him, and this is what he said, I knew something was wrong within the first five minutes. Within four hours, I had mathematical proof that Madoff was a fraud. Now, Markopoulos' company at the time still needed something to compete with Madoff, so they asked them again. They said, come up with something. He tried and tried, but he couldn't do it, because the more he worked on the numbers that he was given, the more problems he found. For example, he was able to demonstrate that in order for Madoff's strategy to work, Madoff would have had to buy more options than were actually available on the entire Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Markopoulos reported his findings to the government. In fact, he did so numerous times over a decade. His concerns were dismissed. Finally, in December of 2008, the scheme fell apart. Madoff was arrested. Individuals, retirement funds, charities, foundations lost billions of dollars. So the question a lot of people have asked, and maybe some of us are asking, is how was, how was Madoff able to pull it off? How did he get away with this for so long? And the answer is very simple, although I doubt you're going to find it very satisfying. Here's the answer. People trusted him. Markopoulos was able to show that within the first few minutes of looking at the numbers, you know, something's wrong. And everybody would have been able to identify that if they would have taken the time. But the fact is, nobody bothered to check because in their minds, Madoff was trustworthy. You take the prospect of lucrative earnings and you couple that with Madoff's impressive circle of influential and wealthy friends and clients, and why in the world would you waste your time checking to see if it's a fraud? This is kind of important because we discover something really, really important about trust, and let me explain to you what this is. Here's what we learn about trust. Are you ready? You look very excited. It doesn't matter, it didn't matter, I should say, how much an investor trusted Madoff because he wasn't trustworthy. Confidence, well-being, quiet resolve, or just a good vibe, none of these things kept people from losing their money, did they? Trusting Madoff did not make their, uh, the fraud less of a fraud. Trusting Madoff did not mitigate losses. Trusting Madoff did not make losses profit. All of these things happened not because the trust was absent. All of these happened because Madoff was a fraud and he was not trustworthy. 
to trust with confidence in a fraud does not make somebody less a fraud, does it? Honestly, we have to keep this in mind when we look at the Bible, because the Bible tells us to trust God. In fact, the Bible tells us to trust Jesus and what He did on the cross for us and trust that He was raised from the dead. All of these things are true. All of these things are powerful, not because we trust them, not because we have faith in Christ. Is He powerful? Christ is powerful because Christ is the Son of the living God. Faith, in fact, doesn't save us. I'll let you sit on that one for a minute. Faith in Christ saves us. In fact, faith in Christ saves us not because we have a strong faith, but because we have a strong Christ. So in this final message of 1 John, uh, after today we're going to begin in the book of Ephesians, we're going to talk about what it means to trust. So the title of the message today is, Who Do You Trust? And since Christ is trustworthy, what should we expect from that? Christ is not trustworthy because we trust Him. Christ is trustworthy whether we trust Him or not. And the question is, who do we trust, and what should we expect from that trust? Let me read again just to get us started to remind you where we're at in 1 John, the first five verses of 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that the love... Excuse me, I'm having trouble reading. The smoke is... It's hard to see my copy of the Scripture. It's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the key verse here I want us to focus on is verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So the first question I want to ask us ourselves here in this first section is, who do you trust to overcome? Who do you trust to overcome? The world can be a bit of a scary place. We were reading this news this morning that North Korea has come up with an even larger bomb and a missile to put it on. be a little scary and intimidating in the, the geopolitical world we live in today. But not only the world we live in, but the, the world system we live in that is opposed to Christ and, and life in the Lord through Jesus Christ. How do we experience victory? How do we experience power in a world where everything is bent against God? In a world where everything is bent against the gospel? Who do you trust to overcome? Do you trust a powerful politician? Do you trust an important religious figure? Do you trust yourself? To overcome. Who do you trust to overcome in this world? Look what he said earlier in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 in your Bible, just a little bit of ways. 1 John 4, chapter 4, he says this, Little children, 
you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Every single person who has put their faith in Christ for salvation has the Holy Spirit residing in them. God Himself has taken up residence in every believer. We have the presence of God permanently affixed in us until the day we are with Christ again. So we will never again be out of the presence of God. And the one who is in us, God Himself, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the devil, he who is in the world. The indwelling spirit within us is stronger than the devil, stronger than the world and the world's systems, stronger than sin. In fact, the Holy Spirit living in us is stronger than death. It was the power of God who raised Christ from the dead, and He has overcome the grave. So the Holy Spirit living in us is greater than He who is living in the world. What does this world have that it can do to us? What kind of power does the world have in comparison to the Holy Spirit that resides in us? We have the Spirit when we're born of God, and having the Spirit, we have overcome the world. So who do we trust to overcome the world? It is God living in us by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we overcome the world? What does it say down in verse 5? Or I should say verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's trust. Do we trust that Christ is, in fact, King of the universe and will, in fact, have victory in the world around us, or are we sitting, hiding under our desks, scared? We have the Spirit, we have the presence of Christ in us, and when we trust Christ, we have the power in Him to overcome the world. There's nothing in this world that is more powerful than Jesus. There's nothing in this world more powerful than the presence of Christ by His Spirit in us. Really, the question becomes, do we believe it or not? So what is this manner? What does it mean to overcome the world? What does it mean to have victory in this world? Well, there's lots of things we might hope that that would mean. We would hope, perhaps, that the world would finally get your politics. When revival comes, the world will vote the way you vote. When revival comes, children will finally be obedient to their parents. When revival comes, your brother-in-law will finally see it your way. These things may or may not need to happen. I don't know. That's up to the Lord. I can't speak to you and your brother-in-law. But the Bible is very clear what it means to overcome the world. And let's look at it. Verse 1 and 2 again. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we obey God. How do we overcome the world by faith? I'm telling you, you're not going to like it, but I didn't write it. You love others. You extend the love of God to the people around you in genuine, authentic, Christ-like ways. 
We show devotion to God. We show devotion to His ways. We show devotion to His people, not by our moral stands, although we ought to have them, not by our political stands, although we ought to have convictions. We show the power of God's work to overcome the world when we walk next door and show Christ-like love to your neighbor. We love others when we take the love of God and we show it to others who don't want it and don't deserve it and who have been annoying and frustrating and offensive. We show devotion to God when we extend Christ-like love and grace to the people around us. This is, in fact, how the world was overcome to begin with. How were the Christians characterized in Jerusalem shortly after Christ's departure? Their love in community together and sharing their life together in Christ was so profound it impacted everybody around them. In Rome, when they were persecuting the Christians, the problem was, and this is what one of the emperors said, I'd love to go in and kill them all, but they're feeding our poor. Sometimes we set our sights on changing the world, which is what Christ has called us to do, but we fail to understand the way that that has always been done is by loving our neighbor. In anonymity, nobody will see it, no one will ever know about it, it's going to be inconvenient, your neighbor's kind of a pain, sometimes he's a jerk, and these are all the things that we were to Jesus before he called us to himself. Who do you trust to overcome? It is the power of the Holy Spirit in you to love your neighbor. The world is not our prize. Jesus is our prize. The world is not our means. The world system is not our means. Jesus is our means, and we can rest in Him because He has already won the war. We can rest in Him and have the margin in our life to show love to our brothers and sisters and to the community around us because there's no fight to be had. He already won. The battle we have to fight is a fight against the enemy who's seeking to convince us not to have love and concern through the gospel for our neighbors and friends. The question we often ask ourselves about overcoming the world is this, is the culture Christian when what we ought to be asking is this, do I love my neighbor? Who do you trust to overcome? When we trust Christ to overcome, He shows us how we can love our neighbor. The world is not our prize, so what is the goal we're looking for? Let's uh, look at the next part of this, verse 6 through 12. Who do you trust to overcome? And now we're going to ask this, who do we trust for life? I'm going to read again, if you don't mind, verses 6 through 12. If you do mind, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, This is what it says, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Who do we trust for life? Who do we trust for life eternal? This is very simple here according to the author of 1 John. Jesus offers eternal life. That is life that never ends and life that is never a letdown. Life that never ends and is always with God and with Him in His glory. So it's a full life, a complete life that never ends. And what John says, there are three witnesses to eternal life in Christ. Water, blood, and spirit. Very strange reading, isn't it? Let me just sum it up this way. John is saying there is a testimony because Christ was baptized. Remember Christ being baptized? He went down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptized him. And in that moment, heaven opened up and God said what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the dove of the Holy Spirit came down and alighted upon him. And it was a way that Christ says, I have come as God-man and I align myself with sinners. I am baptized a sinner's baptism because I am here for sinners. And so John is saying this is a testimony that Jesus is who he said he is. He is a man coming to die for sinners. Not only does his baptism testify who he is, but his death on the cross testifies to who he is. On the cross, he shed his blood that we might receive forgiveness of sin by trusting him. And he was raised from the grave three days later. You can't keep him dead. And so John is saying, I'm a eyewitness to this. The guy, he was baptized, and God affirmed his ministry to sinner and sinners. And John says, I saw him nailed to the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And finally, God testifies to who Christ is because Christ is raised from the dead. Jesus is God. He is man, and He is our Savior. So John wants us to trust Christ for forgiveness, but this is not a blind trust. This is an informed trust. This is trust informed by eyewitnesses. This is trust that said we have seen what He has done, we have heard what He has said, and we believe He is the Son of God. We believe that in Him we have an inheritance and a blessing. Who do you trust for eternal life? Is it yourself? Do you trust yourself that you'll have a good and fulfilling life here? Who do you trust for eternal life? I just want to read Ephesians chapter 1, a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I think it's important to understand what this life is, this eternal life that Christ has purchased. This is what it says in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be God, excuse me, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many spiritual blessings are there in the heavenly places? Like at least a dozen. I have no idea, but there's probably a lot. I mean, God lives there. How many of those are we given? That would be all of them. When you get to heaven, and you find a drawer that says, spiritual blessings, that's your stuff. Have at it. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What are we before Him? Holy and blameless. Congratulations, He did that for you. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as th- sons 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. What is your title in the kingdom of God? Child of God, son or daughter of the King. That's pretty good. For the most significant, important kingdom in existence, you're a son or daughter of the King. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace. He forgives us of our sins according to how much we've sinned, right? No, He forgives us of our sins according to riches of His grace. Why? Because there's more of His grace than our sin, so He gives us the higher value item. He says, I'll forgive you according to the riches of my grace, but it never ends. Lucky you. Of course, we discover he gave us all these things begrudgingly, and he didn't really want to, but he got painted himself into a corner, right? No, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all the wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. You ever bought something cool for your kid on Christmas? Who's more excited? I know the dad's in here. You're trying to sneak it to your son. No, open this one. Mom won't know. I'll rewrap it. Who's more excited when, when, when you know they're going to they're gonna go bonkers when they open this gift? I mean, as a parent, you, you've been there, right? You're like, he's gonna go. you've got your iPhone up. You've got it on record. You're going to show that video at their wedding. You know how that goes. <laughs> this is what we discover about God. He wants us, as we, as we gaze upon this gift, this grace He's given us, He's like, look what I did. It's crazy. This is the life. This is what Christ has given us for uh, His glory, for His benefit, and just because He loves us that much. When we trust Him, we're poured out upon ourselves this inheritance, this blessing, this full and eternal life. God did not hold back. He is not cheap. He is this amazing. He gives us His kingdom, He gives us inheritance, He gives us eternity. Let me put it this way. God has designed you for a particular thing for your life, and almost all of it hasn't happened yet. And it doesn't even matter how old you are. God has designed you specifically for a thing. And we have, I mean, we haven't even scratched it yet. Who do we trust for eternal life? This is a good one to trust because He has given us so much. You say, well, heaven is hard to imagine. I don't know what that's going to be like. Is it going to be clouds or going to be Cupid? I don't know. There won't be Cupid. There won't be any of that. So how is that supposed to inform my life today? How am I supposed to inform my life today knowing that someday I will be in glory? How is that supposed to help? Well, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Tomorrow's Labor Day. Some of us don't have to work tomorrow. Some of us do. But for those of you who have the day off, you can think of it this way. Today is Sunday, right? You know what Sunday normally is like. Yeah. And there's no football today. I don't think, is there? No, yeah. But tomorrow's Labor Day. Doesn't Sunday change a little bit when Monday's no work? I, I mean, t- Monday changes, a Sunday changes, and now all of a sudden today is, is pretty nice. Uh, same thing, Friday, last day of work on a work week, and it's Friday, but you get vacation is the next week. How's that Friday? Man, nothing bad can happen that day. 
I mean, hail and a firestorm could hit your place of business. Like, it's okay, I got Monday off. And this is, he says, he wants us to, no, we've got something coming. Something that if we knew of it, it would blow our minds to such a degree, we would say, we want out. This is the life he has given us. Who will we trust for life? We must trust this Christ because he has given us so much. And he is trustworthy. But life is not intended to just be a waiting room where we just sit around waiting for eternity to show up. How do we experience eternity today? So last little section, verses 13 through 21. Who do you trust to hear you when you call? Look with me at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to read it again. So bear with me. I write, this is John, verse 13 of 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Who do you trust to hear you when you call? This is the confidence we have, he says in verse 14, that we have towards God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He wants us to come to him with prayers and requests. He, he wants us to understand that we need him. He wants us to understand that we aren't enough on our own, that we need him, we need him to intervene in our life, and he needs us to seek him according to his will. In fact, what he's calling to us, uh, for us to understand here is we need him, and we need his ways, and we need to trust him in that. John makes a case study here of praying for another believer who is struggling with sin. Now, he describes two kinds of sin. One sin leads to death. One sin does not lead to death. What is the sin that leads to death? I have no idea. I assume it's jumping in front of a bus because that seems like that's what would happen. No, honestly, though, we have no idea. The, the, only point, the only thing is it was quite obvious the church in that day knew what he was talking about. Uh, but if you read uh, 15 commentaries, you would get 17 different answers. We do know this from the balance of Scripture. You cannot sin your way out of salvation, can you? No, you can't. So he is talking about here about something specific that we're not sure what it is. But his primary point is this. If you have a brother who is sin, in sin, we want to pray for sin in the life of others. He wants, he wants us to engage with God that you and, you and I might have victory over sin because of our prayer for one another. 
We can make some assumptions about this kind of sin. This is sin that's repeated. I mean, honestly, you don't need prayer to overcome sin if it's something that happened once. This is, some, this is something they can't shake. This is prayer for uh, them to overcome sin because nothing else is working. This is also sin that is known. How can you pray for something if you don't know about it? It's not necessarily public confession, but somebody knows about the sin this a brother or sister is struggling with because others in the body of Christ are called to engage with them through prayer that they might have victory and overcome sin in their life. So when we have sin in our life, the question becomes this, who do we believe, the accuser or our redeemer? The accuser tells us when we sin, we are what? Oh, we are horrible. We are dirty and we're rotten and we're guilty. What does the accuser tell us about, about other people's sin? I'm glad I don't sin like they do. Man, they're bad. I'm glad my sins are not real bad, not like theirs. Man, those are awful. Those are like get you on probation kind of sins. See, the accuser wants us to, to carry our own shame, and the accuser wants us to hurl guilt and shame on to others, to condescend, be condescending to others who struggle with sin that's differently, different than ours, to pass judgment on others because they can't get their act together, despite the fact that in, in some areas we can't get our act together. And so then all of a sudden we get into fights over what's right and what's wrong because we're living with a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. Think back to World War I. Some of you were... Not there. I don't think any of us were there, hopefully. Trench warfare. I mean, it was ugly. I mean, it was fight for months. Lots of people getting killed to gain 10 feet. And can you imagine one guy in the, in the trench in World War I turning to the other guy in the trench in World War I going, man, your uniform is a lot dirtier and bloodier than mine. Psh, lazy bum. I mean, can you, what would you say? You'd punch him in the face. See, this is what we do. We, we evaluate one another and condescend to one another instead of engaging with the, the spiritual life that John is calling us to do, which is to pray for one another in these important and, and strategic ways. Instead of being caught up in fear, we would rather pray for effectiveness and strength for one another to overcome. Praying for one another that we would overcome sin says, you know what, you trust Jesus, I trust Jesus, let's just go. That's a whole lot different than you trust Jesus, I trust Jesus. Dude, your uniform's dirty. I don't know if I can hang with you. The one thing I think it's worth remembering is when people talk about things just before they die, usually it's the most important things. If you had had opportunity to spend time with someone just before they're passing, you know they generally are bringing up the most important things. And Jesus, on the cross, brought up the most important thing, and it was this, it is finished. Your sin is paid for. Your position is son or daughter of the king. You are redeemed. You don't have to carry that guilt and shame anymore, and we don't longer have to stand in judgment over others. He has finished it. He has had the victory. We now get to jump into the game and pray that others might experience that victory in their own life. We have confidence in Christ. Our reputation won't be tarnished by hanging around with a dirty, rotten sinner. You already are one. 
In Christ, though, we don't live in that identity. We get to live in the identity as sons and daughters of the King. And why not, in the joy of it, pray earnestly that we would live in victory over sin? Read verse 20 of 1 John 5, and we're going to close with this. And by 20, I mean 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In these final thoughts in John's letter here, I think we understand pretty clearly there's a lot at stake when it comes to who we trust. In fact, there's much more at stake here than there was for Bernie Madoff and his victims. In Bernie Madoff's case, all they had to worry about losing was money. Here we're talking about eternal life. Who do you trust to overcome? When it comes to where we place our trust for our future and our life with God, money, of course, is the least of our worries. What is on the line is our life in this world. Will it be a life of victory? Will we live a life of power in God to overcome this world? Who do you trust to overcome? Who do you trust for life? An even graver concern is, have we gained eternal life? You know, our life here is very, very brief. The longest lives lived will be 80, 90, or maybe 100 years. Think of it this way. You know, billions and billions of people have lived 80, 90, 100 years. They've all died, and nearly all of them have been forgotten. Without eternal life, our existence is a mist. You can't even grasp it in your hands. It's here and that has gone. Who do you trust to hear you when you call? When you pray, does God hear you and respond? I think for Christians, this is critically important to know. What is the Christian life if God doesn't hear us? What's the point of access to God's presence if He's too busy, too aloof, or too weak to respond to our prayers? To have confidence about these things, we have to answer, who do we trust? Do I trust my good works? Some of us do. God hears me because I've been really good. Do I trust my lack of sin? Some of us do. I have overcome the world because I don't do any of the really bad things. Do I trust spiritual authority? I know a pastor or a teacher or a religious leader, and as long as they're still in the game, everything's okay. We've had victory in some way. And that last verse of 1 John chapter 5 seems almost out of place, doesn't it? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, how many of us were walking down the street and found ourselves caught up in idolatry? I mean, it seems a little bit strange maybe to our modern ears. But he says it on purpose. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's not out of place. It's critically important to understand an idol is anything we trust other than God. It's real easy to know what your idols are, and you've got tons of them. You've got a whole set. Ask yourself this question. If such were to happen, if blank were to happen, everything would, would finally be okay. If I finally were to have this much money, if I were to get this promotion, if my son or daughter were finally to figure this out, right, everything would finally be Okay, well, guess what? That's what we call an idol, and you're worshiping it. You're expecting that thing to do what only God can do. 
Another way to ask it is this, as long as this doesn't change, as long as I have this job, have this money, this spouse, this marriage, this church, as long as these things stay the same, everything's fine. Well, whatever we need and we can't live without, if that's not God, it's an idol. To live a life of power that overcomes the world, to live a life today in the reality of eternal life, to engage the power of God through effective prayer, we have to set aside our trust in things that are not trustworthy and put all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our trust in the only one who will never fail in his name is Jesus. He has never failed. Not once, not even close. He's killing it. When we do that, we can pray like we've never been praying before. In fact, we can ask people to pray for us like we've never asked before. So let me ask you this question, then we're going to close. How are you going to overcome sin in your life if no one is praying for your victory? You want people to pray for your health and your family and your relationships and your job. Why don't you want people to pray for your idolatry? From what we've seen today, it's pretty important that you stop trusting worthless things, isn't it? So why not ask people to pray for the worthless things you're trusting and that I'm trusting? How is that ever going to happen if no one in uh, your body of believers is praying in specific ways for your struggle with sin? To have that kind of prayer means you have to have relationships that actually go beyond the surface. We have to actually know some people in the body of Christ beyond mere acquaintances. If you haven't already done so, you need to meet up with Pastor Jeff in the lobby, get yourself into a group so you can begin developing friendships that go beyond the acquaintance level and get into the how can I pray for you to overcome sin level. When we live lives with our confidence built in Christ alone, we can live for Him motivated by love and not obligation. If we let go of our need to impress others, impress people with our goodness, impress people with our good behavior, we're finally free just to love God with the affection of our hearts. And that love can flow out of our hearts to others in loyalty and devotion and joy. This is the life God has for us. He wants us to have a life full of joy and power in Christ. I just want you to think about a couple of things here. And honestly, I'm going to close here in about 30 minutes. If you can look in your life and you know there are things you're trusting and they're not Jesus, then it's time to repent. It's time to come to Him and say, you know what, Jesus, I really like you, but I really like these other things better. Now's the time to come and repent. We need to come to God, admit our idols, and ask Him to destroy them. You also need to find someone in this church that you can have a friendship with and you can say, I need to tell you about my idols and my sin. I need you to pray for my victory. We need to take a look at what we pray for. Does our prayer demonstrate that we believe that the spiritual vitality of our brothers and sisters depends on us? There's a brother in this room today that tomorrow will face a temptation he cannot face unless we are praying for his victory. You realize that's how much we depend on each other. Tomorrow he will fail if we are not on our knees 
Oh, we thought we were going it alone. Suck it up, buttercup, do the right thing, right? We're a body. We are in union together. And the only way that brother is going to have victory tomorrow is if somebody in this church is on their knees praying for him. If you think I'm wrong on that, then go read Ephesians 6 this afternoon. We need to be a praying people, but we need to be a people praying for those things which Jesus holds in highest regard.